Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Not long ago, I attended John Fisher's one-man show, A History of World War II, at the Marsh in San Francisco. The show, by the way, continues to run through February 2nd. During John's monologue, he mentioned a children's book that started his obsession with the Second World War by a writer named Frank Bonham. I remembered that years ago, my former co-host, the late Lawrence Davidson of Cody's Books, had interviewed Bonham, whom he'd known as a writer of Western novels and pulp magazine stories. This was one of many interviews with former pulp magazine writers and editors that was heard on the Probabilities radio program on KPFA in the 1970s and 1980s. After pulling out the tape, which was apparently recorded in the fall of 1986 and aired in January of 87, I discovered that Lawrence's co-host was Bill Pronzini, the prolific author of, as of now, more than 80 mystery and historical novels and some 350 short stories. I'd assumed, as I digitized and edited the original program, that Bonham was forgotten today, but not so. A quick look on Amazon reveals that over a dozen of his books are still in print in 2018, including his one bestseller, a young adult novel called Durango Street. But his career began long ago, back in the 1930s, in the world of the now long-gone pulp magazines. Well, I always knew that I wanted to write. I wrote my first short story when I was 10 years old. Uh, we had overnight guests, and in those days, I'm talking about the 1920s, if someone was staying overnight, the kids gave up their beds. So... My brother and I were sleeping on the breakfast room floor, blanket under us and blanket over us. No feelings of self-pity because that's the way it was done in those days. But I had a feeling of dissatisfaction, an itch I needed to scratch. I'd gone to the bathroom so it couldn't be that. There was a problem of getting comfortable. And suddenly I wanted, I wanted to write something. I wanted to write a little short story. So I went and got some of this shiny yellow paper my dad used to bring home from the brewery where he that he managed, and some of the black pencils he brought. And I wrote a story I called The Fight of Tornar. <laughs> I think I, I was reaching for a brand like Bar U Bar or something. Anyway, I wrote this story, and of course, uh, my mother, who also had writing aspirations, praised it, and uh, I liked having my back scratched. So uh, that's where the seed was planted, I think. Then. I thought I would be a journalist, and uh, I had to drop out of school, out of college, before I finished my education. Wound up at 7,000 feet in San Bernardino Mountains, and there was no newspaper to work on. There was nothing to do, so I started writing short stories. I think I, I wrote 13 stories and sold my 13th story. So from then on, getting $30 for a story that I had written, somebody thought was good enough to buy it. Do you remember to, to whom you sold your first story? Yeah, uh, Phantom Detective magazine. The story was called The Green Parrot. 
and it was absolutely improbable. Since I have since raised parrots and tried to train one to talk, I know it was it was hopeless. <laughs> you couldn't train a parrot to say something overnight. <laughs> what convicted the <laughs> the murder? What year was that, Frank? That was nineteen thirty-six. Did you read westerns as a child? Yes, I did. I read Zane Grey. I liked mystery stories, and my brother's two years older than I, and he was kind of my prototype or whatever, my hero. So if he did it, it couldn't be too bad. So I was reading <laughs> westerns, too. I started writing mysteries, because I think this is where my real love lay. So I wrote westerns for many years before I ever was successful at mysteries. I'd like to also know uh, how you got involved with Ed Earl Rep. Back in the 20s and 30s, Rep was a big name in the science fiction field and also in the Western field. Well, it was an accidental thing. I had sold just enough stories that I had an agent now. So I was unable to sell more than 10% of what I wrote, and I wasn't making a living. I was still living at my parents' home. So one day I noticed an ad in the Glendale, California newspaper, which said that writer, uh, successful writer, I think he called himself, <laughs> desires a uh, secretary collaborator. And that sounded pretty good. So I answered the ad, and uh, the man called me and told me to come down to his apartment uh, that night in Glendale. So I went down there and uh, talked to this mousy little man who had a bunch of pink scripts, movie scripts. And he said, I'm a movie writer. My name is Ed Earl Rep. What I need is someone to keep up my pulp markets, my short stories, while I'm working at the studios. So I uh, would like you to take some of these home. Uh, if you think you can make a story out of them, one of them, why, why fine, go ahead and, and we've got a deal. So I wrote my agent the good news that uh, Ed Earl Rep and I were going to collaborate. <laughs> and he wrote back, well, uh, that's not the best news you've had, Frank, because uh, that isn't Ed Earl Rep. He lives in Sherman Oaks, not Glendale. <laughs> so Ed Earl Rep called me, the real Ed Earl Rep. And he said, I think I know who the guy is, and I better not mention his name. He may still be alive. So we went down to talk to the guy, and uh, his wife wouldn't let us in. She had a bunch of safety chains on the, the door. He was sure it was this guy who had done a little work at the studios and taken these scripts home, and now he's going to try to make some money out of it. And uh, Ed drove me home then, and he said, you know, it's such a bad idea. The guy has, Joe, he said, uh, would you like to have a shot at it? He said, this is really, this is what's, uh, what's happening with me. I'm not able to keep up my magazine markets, and maybe we could work together and we'll split the money. So that was the beginning of a relationship that lasted three years. What did you keep out of the... They split? Uh, yeah. Yeah, 50-50. Uh, it was a good deal because I, at that early stage of my career, I had a lot to learn. And Ed could teach me some things. He could teach me how to uh, keep a story going and the importance of action. Characterization didn't come into it. Not with Ed Earl Ref's work, no. <laughs> so I learned a lot from him. And the main thing I learned was how to divide by two. And after, after a couple of years, I, I got married. Ed and his wife were very concerned about Gloria's and my getting married. We thought we were adults and ready for something like this. I was 23 and she was 21, but they thought we were kids. And they were kind of worried about us being able to make it on my money, my earnings, which was probably $100 a month. But you were not the only one who worked for him in this capacity, were you? There were others. There were others. He had a regular factory, fiction factory going here, didn't he? He had five 
sweatshop laborers in this fiction <laughs> factory at one time, which I was one, and Tom Blackburn was one, a man named Howard Lane, a friend of mine named uh, Ed uh, Roll, a friend of mine in high school, and he sold him a few stories before he got out of the writing business, and, and there were some others whose names I don't remember. Ed was very agile, the artful dodger. He was able to keep us from discovering each other until one day Howard Lane walked in and we were at his home. And from that point on, a little dissatisfaction set in, I'm sure. Do you think that Rep did any of his own writing? No, I think all he did was a little, little blue penciling on, on our stuff. I knew he was writing scripts, and I think that's about all he did do. So I had learned what I could from the man and uh, gotten some markets established. Nobody knew my name, and that began to bother me. I think there may be a tiny bit of vanity in most writers. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and my vanity wasn't being assuaged, so that was a source of dissatisfaction. Did you have any trouble selling under your own name after three years in limbo? No, I really was able to hit running because I, I knew how to do it now. And the first story I sold, sent out, sold no time at all. So with just one sale, I, w I was established, it seemed, because the, the, the standards were not as high as they are in fiction now. Your, your split with Rep wasn't totally amicable, was it? Uh... No, it wasn't really friendly, because uh, I, I asked Ed to let me sell half of my stuff under my own name so that I wouldn't be quitting cold. I wouldn't be going out into the world unclad when I left him. And he didn't want to do this, and he implied that I was ungrateful, and he had hoped that I might want to take over his name when we split up. They had Earl Rep reputation. <laughs> Who would want to take over the reputation? But Ed didn't, didn't realize it. He was getting mistreated by the editors, we all were. Rogers Terrell at Popular Publication said to him in a letter one time, Ed showed it to me, and he was kind of amused. And, and Rogers said, uh, Ed, sometimes you sound like you were two guys. <laughs> so they were in a position of power relative to how much they paid. They could short count us on the words, and we got paid for words like they were pennies. So uh, when we split up, according to our contract, which Ed wrote, and I didn't know anything about law <clears throat> or business and still don't know much, but he was to keep everything that was unsold when we split up. And as soon as the dissatisfaction began to rot our relationship, he began holding it back, obviously. We weren't selling anything. My wife and I were married, and uh, my girlfriend and I were now married. We were living in the mountains in a two-room cabin, and expenses were small, but they were, they were not zero, and we were getting zero money. So we split up. He got 80,000 words of copy free. And immediately, spans were inundated with interrel rep stories written by Frank Baum. So that was the source of some dissatisfaction. But it was worth it to, uh, to be free, finally. I left rep, I think, in 1939. And about 1943, I got into Fictioneers, I think, only four years later. But in that short space of time, I've been in the Army for a year and a half. I discovered this group, the Fictioneers, through a writer, friend, and neighbor. I, I don't think any of us learned anything from each other. There were five writers involved in a building called the Broadway Building in Pasadena. And there was a writer, a mystery story writer named John Saxon. And I sublet his office for a while next door to Bellum's. 
Uh, he was a court reporter, Saxon was. Robert Bellum was George Armand Shaftel. And then another guy would come and go, run an office for a while and disappeared. And Todd Hunter Ballard was in there. So we got together and we didn't hold Lonely Hearts Writing Club sessions. We didn't read each other our stuff as a rule. I don't know just why, but I think maybe we were all we were competitive, I guess. We were going for pretty much the same markets. We didn't want to share our ideas, I suppose. We kind of supported ourselves with creative energy that was going on in the building. Let me interject. The Fictioneers were a group of Southern California writers who primarily were pulp writers who wrote for the various pulp magazines. Isn't that right, Frank? That's right. And there were uh, how many approximately in the group? I think there were about 30 of us. And you met regularly? uh, to. uh, We met once a month at a restaurant. It was discussion of the markets primarily. It was shop talk. It was that uh, cold-blooded, in, in a sense, that we were talking about making a living. Ray Bradbury was in it. Bradbury was one of the most interesting people in the group. And he was selling newspapers on the corner of Olympic and 7th and Olympic, I think it was, in Los Angeles, and writing short stories, not making a living, except for selling newspapers. <laughs> he told me that he, he kept 90 stories, short stories going all the time at different stages of development. He would start a story and work a few days on it or hours and put it away and then he'd get out another story. And he would continually examine these like a laboratory technician growing bacteria, I guess. And (laughs) at a certain stage, it was ready to go to market. And he would decide this is it and he'd retype it and send it in. So he kept his tremendous backlog of stories going. And uh, Henry Kuttner was another science fiction writer, and I guess mystery. He, was, he wrote mysteries, yeah. He was highly respected, and he was a good friend of Bradbury's. And then there was Todd Ballard doing mysteries and westerns, and Les Savage, and Robert Leslie Bellum, George Shaftel, and uh, Dean McGoy, also known as Dean Owen, Dudley Dean, Bill Galt, who come to meetings and so forth, Bill Cox. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about Robert Leslie Bellum, who seems to have been a, a real pulp character? He was a, a very intelligent man. He had a, a true photographic memory. Uh, he was the greatest idea man who ever lived in the pulps, I think. Very prolific. He, he wrote uh, all of Hollywood Detective every month, which I think was uh, 80,000 words. And he also wrote short stories for or novelettes for others of the same the same magazine group. Claimed to have written 3,000 stories, which is probably true. I think it probably is true. And he would send a story. Uh, he was almost on salary. It was it was uh, frustrating, a source of envy to the rest of us. Every Friday, Bob's check came in from uh, Hollywood Detective. He was very prolific and not very good as far as... as Pros went. At this time, I was I was kind of interested in the classics still. I was reading Don Quixote. I had a nice Heritage Club edition of it, and I wanted to read him the first paragraph because I felt this really hooked. And he listened into it, and he had a way of turning up his nose and mustache when he didn't like something like a rabbit. He'd flip it, and he said, "I got off classics at the suggestion of Christopher Morley. Bob had been in, had lived in." Philadelphia, where Morley lived, and he uh, he showed him some poetry, and Morley said, well, if you want to make a living writing, young man, you'd better not read the classics, and you better not try to write poetry. It's going to 
influence your writing, and you don't want to be influenced by the classics or poetry. So this was Bob's apology for never trying to write good. This is an example of Bob's versatility, I think, and energy. When he was 18 years old, he got a job with the Philadelphia Inquirer in the classified department. And within a year, he was the head of the classified department, and he had developed a system which I think was standard for many years that classified categories were written on different colored papers. If it was the lost dog department, well, it went on pink papers. Now, this was Bob's idea, very practical. And so he, he just kind of took this over, and then he became music critic. He didn't know much about music, <laughs> but he was so energetic and versatile and, and full of ambition that he succeeded about everything he tackled there. Somehow he, he uh, overwhelmed people. His memory, and he told me this was really a, a handicap to him. He said that he would start a story, and then he he had the gimmick, which is what he always started with, on a character. Now, at a certain point, the story needed to make a turn. Uh, let's say that it was a, uh, a glass doorknob. Importance was attached to it. And he would think, okay, there's a, a huge diamond inside that doorknob. And then he'd think, no, wait a minute, Shaftel used that, or one of the old-timers used, used that idea. Another idea would come up. He said, any idea I come up with, I don't really have any original ideas. They're, they're all switches. But it was a form of genius, the way he could do the switches, the way he could take an idea and handle it like, uh, like Play-Doh or Silly Putty. <laughs> Maybe Silly Putty is <laughs> a little closer. But he would just come up with an infinite variety of ideas. His personal uh, life was a little odd, too, wasn't it? Uh... <laughs> It, it was very odd. He, uh, he and his wife, Blanche, Bibi, for Blanche Bellum, had no children. And they compensated for this by having a teddy bear. They had a large koala teddy bear. And this teddy bear was a person to be respected when you, when you called on them. The teddy bear sat at meals in a high chair, even if they were entertaining an editor and his wife. The teddy sat there. They just called him Bear. Bear sat there, and he had a little plate of eucalyptus leaves. And Pasadena, there are plenty of eucalyptus leaves. So he would sit with his little plate. It was like accepting things in childhood. Your your parents are alcoholics or something, so, well, aren't, aren't everybody's? So you kind of accepted your eccentric friends. I suppose people still do, but I didn't think this particularly unusual. But Bear was always there, and you wouldn't put a hand on him. He was wearing out. He had bald spots. There, uh, his baby's mysophobia was formidable. She had had tuberculosis as a girl, and she never overcame her fear of bugs. There was always a freshly laundered bath towel just inside the front door. And when you came in, you were expected to wipe your feet thoroughly on that. Now you're scattering bugs around from the sidewalk. Bob told me in confidence one time that when we'd had dinner at their home, the guest silverware was always segregated and boiled. I'd like to ask you about any of the men who were editing the Western magazines. My favorite editor, the man with whom I did the, the most business and from whom I learned a lot, was Mike Tilden at Popular Publications. And Mike edited, I suppose, 20 magazines, Mystery and Western. He respected the Western genre, too. And he was a very warm-hearted Irishman. 
Unfortunately, he had a, another trait of the Irish, which was alcoholism, which finally did him in. Whenever we went to New York, which would be every two or three years, I guess, we would have dinner with the Tildens at their apartment in Long Island, which looked like the apartment of a couple of alcoholics, unfortunately. He was a very honest, earnest man, very intelligent. I remember the first time we went back, I hadn't met him before. I took along a set of William uh, Stephen Vincent Benet's works, uh, collected poetry and John Brown's body, I think. And I was very enamored of him at that time. And Mike was kind of overwhelmed. This is a commentary on the Western writers of that period, I guess. A lot of them didn't do much reading, any reading, except for Westerns, perhaps. And he said, my God, Western writer reading Stephen Vincent Benet? I don't know whether he felt a little bit unhappy that he had to make his living editing this kind of thing. I think he probably had literary ambitions, though he never voiced them. But he was an able editor. Everybody liked him, and he paid honestly and promptly and so forth. Rogers Terrell was another editor, and he was a little more, maybe a, a little less personal than Mike Tilton, also a good editor. And some of these editors... You know, edited people like John Steinbeck and uh, I don't know about Hemingway, but he's ever in the, the pulps, uh, Raymond Chandler, and a lot of very highly regarded writers. Started in the pulps, started in Black Mask. Uh, I don't know that any of them started in the westerns, other than the one men who became famous for their western work. Well, Earl Stanley Gardner started writing westerns. Is that right? Yes. I didn't know that. For Black Mask, as a matter of fact, when it was an adventure magazine. Yeah, Black Mask, I think, was the uh, nursery for a lot of very good writers. By a man who became my agent later, Captain Joseph T. Shaw. Uh, as you know, I'm sure he edited Black Mask in the, the days of its glory. And then after... Pulps began to slip a bit. Joe Shaw was let go, I guess, and he became an agent. And he joined the uh, Sidney Sanders agency. Sanders was my agent, and then Joe handled my my stuff. He handled the, the pulp writers at all, Sanders, McKinley, Cantor, and the big writers. So I got to know Joe, and he was a wonderful, wonderful old guy. After he became my agent, whenever I'd go to New York, go up to his home in Scarsdale, and stay with him and his wonderful wife, Hannah, who's Czechoslovakian, wonderful accent, wonderful woman, and his wonderful children. It was a great family. Joe was the patriarch. He bled when his writers bled. Having been an editor, he knew, the, knew what the editors were up against, but he knew what the writers were up against, too. Did you consider him a good agent? He was a good agent in that people liked and respected him. The editors did, that is, and they were always pleased to do business with him. However, at the, the last of his career, age was beginning to affect his judgment, I guess, and he had developed Dashiell Hammett, really. At least Hammett developed under him his tutelage or whatever. Hammett has his own way of writing. His style was entirely non-reflective. Man had an impression of the people in a room when he entered it. We did not go into his mind and, and say what he felt about these people, and he felt a chill and so forth. The man might say, you look like a happy group of undertakers or something. Any feelings he had had to be expressed in dialogue. That was the Hammett style. And 
Joe had had such success with him and such admiration for him as a writer, if not as a person, that finally, as an agent, everybody had to write like it. John D. MacDonald was a client of his, and MacDonald split off, and I, I didn't split off. I had reached the point where I was going to have to, because he was beginning to rewrite my stuff. <laughs> I'd send a complete manuscript, and he was beginning to make changes, and and uh, I don't know if they have it retyped or not, then. but um, anyway, occasionally things would come out, and I'd see that he'd change them. And this doesn't go down with, well with the vanity of a, a writing person. Just before I had concluded that I couldn't take any more of it, Joe died. When the Popes started to die, you were successful in transferring over to books. Uh, I had a letter in, I think, 1947 from Jack Bassett at Simon & Schuster, starting the new SNS line. And uh, he wrote a, it was almost like a fan letter, enthusiastic letter. He'd been reading, uh, I guess, a number of writers preparing to set up this line. And he'd come across my things in popular publications, magazines, Dime Westerns, so on. I think it was Dime Westerns in which I wrote a series of three novelettes featuring a character named Griff Holbrook named after the town in Arizona, in fact, and researched in Tucson in 1948. So he liked uh, these novelettes and wondered if I would like to try to link them up into a novel. And I remember he used the, the phrase that no writer can quibble with, where have you been all my life? <laughs> Literally used that. And he was genuinely enthusiastic about what he was doing. Uh, so I signed a contract with him through Joe Shaw, and did this book, and then I did another book, and then I did a third book. Lost Stage Valley was the first. That was the first, Lost Stage Valley. Snake Bold Track, Passage, Bold Passage, Passage and then yeah. Snake Track. And Snake Track. I did those those three. Jack Bassett was mystery editor Lee Wright's husband. Is That's that right? right? That's right. Uh, Lee Wright edited the Simon & Schuster Mysteries at this time. Correct. And she was, she was a, a gifted woman. And she brought the uh, Simon Schuster mystery line along beautifully. And I'm sure she was the guiding hand with, with Jack. Jack was uh, in late middle age then, and I don't know what he had done before. To tell you the truth, maybe they hadn't been married long or something. I don't know. But anyway, just all of a sudden, he was, a, he was an editor there. And uh, I learned some things from him. I remember... Uh, I remember one thing he objected to in my first book, Lost State Valley, which was acceptable in the pulp version of the story, and that was that somebody happened to overhear something, and that was not acceptable to Jack Bassett and his philosophy of the Western, that it's got to be planted better than that. You don't happen to hear something. But that was in the outline. I, say that, I said that Griff happened to overhear someone saying this woman won't be around town very long and so forth. So that was an important thing. I think I, I have, haven't forgotten that. It's related to the coincidence taboo, of course. So relations were good with, with Jack, and the sales were pretty good. And then Ballantyne came along, and they were offering Western writers $5,000 a book, and that was uh, two and a half times what I was getting at Simon Schuster, and they didn't want to come up. And so, with some recriminations, we parted. They did not have an option on my next book. It was, for some reason, it had to be left open on that contract because of something else I was doing. And I didn't want to be bound by that. 
and then it came in handy when I had to break the contract. I went to, uh, to Valentine, as I say, and Bernard Shercliffe, who was a, a, a very young man, I think he was in his 20s, and very intelligent and industrious, and uh, also had a way with making the writer feel important, which is uh, not a small talent for editors to keep them going. Uh, so we worked together well. And then, as most people know, I guess, who are, inter who are at all interested in this pulp field and the Western magazine field, the other paperback publishers ganged up on Valentine and just about wiped them out, and they also wiped themselves out by flooding the market with old titles, which they could reissue free of royalties. So that was, I guess, the end of the, the Valentine era, too. You did how many books for Valentine, Frank? I didn't think it was more than three or four. Blood on the uh, Moon, Night Raid, Feuded Spanish Ford, Hard Rock. Your first published novel, <laughs> Lost Age Valley, was turned into a film called Stage to Tucson, which I have heard you weren't real thrilled with. No, it, it wasn't much, but probably the book wasn't much either. But I, I remember I visited the, uh, the set a couple of times, and I talked to a guy named Harry, Harry something, who was the producer. Harry Joe Brown. Harry Joe Brown, yeah. He was a well-known producer of Westerns, I think. While they, they were shooting one corner of the set while he and I were talking, and I was telling him that I was a little bit embarrassed about a gimmick in the story in which there was a, a stagecoach which had been uh, pirating other stagecoaches. It was a mystery stagecoach, and it had black iron sides on the thing so they could, so they could shoot out without getting killed and of course what's going to happen to the horses <laughs> i guess they wore armor but I, I was kind of apologizing for this and he said hell that's why i bought it <laughs> gimmicks like that make the movie so i i learned something from him too. maybe that's why it was such a bad movie <laughs> You worked on some screenplays and you sold some stories to television. I was not making a living in the books all of a sudden. The pulp market just about ceased to be. And so most of the Western writers I knew were hightailing for Hollywood, hoping to survive. So I was able to get into the work through Collaborate. You had to belong to the guild to do screen work, and you had to do screen work before you could belong to the guild. So the way we broke the code was through collaboration. So I collaborated with two different men, Dwight Newton and Robert Leslie Bellman. I did a script with each of them. And after that, I was in the industry, as they say, and I was able to work on my own. But I didn't enjoy it. I, I did it for two years. I sold, I think, 12 scripts in that time, which is not a living. It wasn't at that time. Maybe it would be today. But I wasn't well suited to it. The only similarities between TV work and, uh, and novels is dialogue. And even it, of course, is, is quite different. But the rest of it could be written by a third grader. For which shows did you write, Frank? I think my first one was uh, a Wagon Train collaboration with Dwight Newton. And uh, then I wrote a, a Wells Fargo. And I wrote one for Death Valley Days. So they were all Westerns and anthologies, most of them. You were a member of Western Writers of America. I was never very much involved with uh, Western writers. I think it had been in existence for three or four years 
when I went to the first convention at Santa Rosa, and it was very enjoyable. And uh, a lot of these people I had never met, Western writers whose names I had known for a long time. Uh, so I, I enjoyed the social aspect of it. I didn't want to get into any work. I couldn't conceive of being corresponding secretary or anything. I think I, I was in it for four or five years. And then I got into children's books, and there was no point. I was no longer doing Westerns, and there was no point in my keeping up uh, pretense, I felt. So I, I finally dropped out. Uh, one interesting thing happened. This is a, a tragic story. We didn't know it was a tragedy. We thought it was a comedy at the time. But uh, I was enough involved in the politics that the then uh, secretary began causing a lot of trouble by uh, unilateral decisions and so forth. I don't believe I'll mention his name, but it reached a point where this man was annoying everybody, and we had a, an election, it was a recall election. And so the votes were sent to this man, and he, being secretary, was to send them on to me and Hal Everts and Scott Nutterdale, Scott Boyle and I met at my place to count the votes, and it was really amusing. So you have to understand that this guy had annoyed everybody in the group, and he had nothing but enemies at this point. So we were opening the ballots as he sent them and counting them. And as the vote went for and against him, it was like a, a really a, a well-plotted story. Her hero was getting behind, and then he surges ahead, then he makes a terrible mistake, and he's behind again, and finally, finally the hero wins. That's good. The man lost, is the way it worked out. And so we had a new secretary, and I think within six months he was dead of a brain tumor. So we knew then why he'd been acting so strangely. So I was not very deeply into it. I enjoyed the conventions very much, and I remember that my first convention, we were invited, this whole bunch of heart-wrenching writers, on a hot summer day to, I believe, the Corvell. Corvell Winery. Corvell Winery. This has to be a format for chaos, a writer's convention in a winery. We'd swim and come out and drink some more and eat some more. And ladies were there. It was great. We were all drinking prime champagne. They told Tommy Thompson, the secretary, later that they knew that writers would drink, probably would drink their share of champagne, but they, they had underestimated our capacity. But then I dropped out after I got into children's books. I said I just didn't have the interest in the Westerns anymore. There wasn't enough money in it. If I could write a children's book and it would stay in print for 20 years, why, my God, why, how could I afford to write a Western, which is gonna, never going to earn any royalties, just get the advance, and that's it. That takes us into children's books. Frank is, a, is an extremely well-known children's book writer. He has published more than, isn't it more than 40, Frank? About 25. One of which, Durango Street, was a bestseller. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your your experiences writing children's books? It's a market that I enjoyed very much. Uh, here was a switch suddenly. I was living in the straight jacket of Westerns in which the heroes pretty much had to be a certain type of man. The woman had to see a certain type of woman. Things have loosened up since then, but at that time, strictures were very, very uncomfortable, for me at least. Now I got into a market where any idea could be a good idea. My first book was uh, called Burma Rifles. It dealt with a Japanese-American boy, Nisei, based on 
he says I had known in Compton around my uncle's farm there. And they were, of course, shipped off to the uh, relocation centers, we, as we called our concentration camps. So this was the background story. So I wrote the story called Burma Rifles about the experiences of the, the young Japanese-American men with Merrill's Marauders behind Japanese lines, 14 of them acting as uh, intelligence reconnaissance man, men risking their lives every night, crawling out to the Japanese foxholes at night to listen in and find out where they were going to attack the next day. So uh, next one grew out of that one, a man I had to, a submarine skipper I interviewed in order to find out something about navigation. Then I wrote a submarine story next. And after that, I, I wrote a um, skin diving story. By now I was getting into skin diving and so forth. Your best-selling uh, juvenile novel, Durango Street, what was the plot of that, the premise of that book? That had to do with the the racial question. Uh, the black minority problems had, had been pushed aside so long that by time of the Watts riots, the pressures were terrific. I was researching in this field a couple of years before that. Uh, for a year and a half, I researched the gang uh, phenomenon in Los Angeles. And I worked with the uh, police, uh, drove police cars. I worked with social workers. And uh, I met with gangs, uh, gangs who were on probation and required to have a meeting once a week with a social worker who was a gang expert or go to jail. All their probation or paroles would be violated and so forth. And with the parents of the gang kids, so I was so full of this material, uh, physically it sickened me, the, the tragedies that I witnessed. And, riding with the police and so forth, and all the kids in trouble, and the dead kids and, and all the rest. And it became almost too much for me. So I, I thought I was going to do a fact book on this phenomenon. But then when uh, it came time to do an I did an outline, and my editor at uh, Thomas White Kroll Company, Elizabeth Riley, said she didn't know what the market She'd encouraged me to do a fact book or search it. Then she did, said she didn't think that would be a good idea. How about a novel? Well, that was the best advice anybody ever gave me because the book came out the week of the Watts riots. I believe it was the first book for teenagers with a black hero and dealing with their problems. It wasn't somebody's servant or something. It was in their world, and I had done so much research that I really knew what I was talking about this time. And so it came out, as I say, the week of the Watts riots, and all of a sudden every librarian and big city teacher in the country had to have a set of Durango Street's classroom set, which, which we're talking about 30 books or something like that. So it was a bestseller, and it's still, it's still selling uh, maybe four or $5,000 a year. It's 25 years later, something like that, 22 years later. And it was very gratifying because uh, I was saying something that was doing some good. I was speaking at schools, high schools, junior, junior high schools in ghetto areas and all the big cities in the country. I think, I don't think I missed many. And getting fan mail from kids who hadn't been able to read a year before. I don't know how many books started. Durango Street was the first book I ever read. And that gives you a good feeling. What about future books? And what goals remain for you as a writer? What would you like to accomplish still? What I would like to achieve is success as a mystery book writer. Now, this is, I've always felt good about mysteries. I like to read them. I like to write them. 
they're they're much harder for me than westerns because they have to make sense you might say uh, they're not all action and and emotion let's say a good western has these elements too and a little bit of mystery is not misplaced in a in a western as far as it goes but uh, they're they're modern I think that's a big thing I can use the the idiom of the streets as uh, Len Elmore Leonard does so successfully his voice and I am I have just finished a book on which I've been working for two years and two months it nearly killed me. I was writing about two and a half books, and I removed a book and a half and finally have, have a book now. I like working on a book for a long time in a sense. The the suspense nearly kills you. Of course, you're wondering, I don't know whether I'm going to sell this book or not. I just finished it two days ago, uh, much longer than I thought it should be, but I've learned since that 300 pages is not a bad distance for such a book. But I like the way I love the way things work out in a story and the way your unconscious mind comes to your assistance. I've always known that I did not work things out at the typewriter with my fingers and my so-called brain. I work it out on the same level as one dreams. And I have some almost metaphysical feelings about this now. You can't push your unconscious mind any more than you can push a noodle. You can pull it, but you can't push it. You have to feed your unconscious mind, and you feed it by doing things, meeting people, and going places. I learn by going where I have to go, and so forth. And this informs your mind, your unconscious mind, and it can do its work. And in this story on which I've been working so long, a lot of good elements, great elements, finally came together in it. I, I suffered. I rewrote. I have, I think, 3,000 pages of outtakes. I have a, almost a complete story that I wrote that didn't belong there that I set her aside and I'll write that one next. So completely divorced, but I had to work through it to learn it. So anyway, the writing experience for me, especially when I'm writing mystery. Do you think you'll do any more Westerns, Frank? I probably will. My last two were done about, uh, I guess, seven eight, or eight years ago. They were in connection with a... Uh, a sale, a resale of 15-mile uh, westerns to Berkeley Books, and they wanted to reissue them, and they wanted two new books to start the list with, so I wrote two new ones. Now they are withdrawing them, and we're recovering the rights, and I think I have a sale lined up, and I'll do it again. And again, they will want a couple of new ones, and I look forward to it because I can write them. I write them honestly and uh, not easily, but with a little more relaxation with a little less feeling of uh, this has got to work or I'm a nerd. It won't take you two years to write uh, to write your next <laughs> Western. I hope not. I don't know <laughs> that I have that many years left. Considering I started in 1936, I guess it was. This is your, your 50th uh, anniversary as a, as a professional writer? Well, right? my first story was sold my 20th birthday, which had been 1934, I guess. I mean, just before my 21st birthday. So I was 20 when I wrote it. So I, I think this will be 52 years next January. Frank Bonham, who was born in 1914, died within two years of this interview at the age of 74. The mystery novel he'd just completed appears never to have been published. Amazon lists four pages of Frank Bonham novels and short story collections that is still in print, again, most notably Durango Street, and they include 
a 2014 collection of Western short stories edited by Bill Pronzini. Bill Pronzini's latest novels are The Violated, a psychological suspense novel, and Give a Damn Jones, an offbeat Western, and coming up, The Flim Flam Affair, number eight in the Carpenter and Quinn Cannon series of historical mysteries set in San Francisco in the 1890s. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.